Leviticus chapter 15, starting at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanliness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge, or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who isn't clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge... Then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, and wash his clothes. And he shall bathe his body in fresh water, and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make his atonement for him before the Lord, For his discharge. If a man has an omission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an omission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge of her body is blood, She shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her, and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which she, he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, All the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanliness. 
as in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an omission of semen, becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is, for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Josh. Well, uh, the fact that we just had that read out and we're about to hear it preached, I think demonstrates to you our commitment to expository preaching. At least I hope it does. As our family listened to this this morning at Hugh and Page's house outside and the neighbours were sort of about doing things in the yard, I kind of thought, well, you know, people have been saved listening to all sorts of passages of Scripture, and this could be one of them. You never know. What a great story that would be. Well, let, uh, let me begin by asking you, is there a part of you that you wish God could not see? Perhaps it's a part of your physical body that you are ashamed of. Or maybe uh, it's a secret habit that you haven't told anybody else about. Or maybe it's an aspect of your personality or your character that you've tried to change or you've tried to improve, but you just can't seem to make any progress on. From the moment Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one of the effects uh, of that disobedience has been something that every human being ever since has felt. Shame. Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves to hide the shame of their nakedness. They sought to try and hide their nudity from God. Today we do both physical and psychological and social and emotional fig leafing to try and cover our shame. Now if we are to live as Christians holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly devoted to being holy, H-O-L-Y, to the Lord. How are we to do that? Our chapter this morning 
uh, chapter 15 of Leviticus covers some of the most intimate and embarrassing things that could happen to a person, both men and women. And the reason for the title consecrated to the core is because this chapter, like the ones before it, points us points us to the fact that consecration to the Lord involves our whole selves. Consecration meaning to be set apart, to set us apart ourselves is to, is to set apart every single square centimeter of us. It's not just the body, it's not just the soul, it is all of it that we set apart for Him. We are to be consecrated to the core, through and through, from head to toe, from skin to soul, from health to heart. And so if that is indeed true, which it is, then there is not a single part of you or your lived experience that is not seen by God. None of it. All is known by and is consecrated to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, is that how we live? We're going to consider this passage with the following headings. Firstly, piety in private. Second, sanctifying separation. Thirdly, Christ at the core. Well, let's open our hearts and our ears to hear what the Lord has to say, beginning with our first heading. And this will by far be the longest of the three. So firstly, piety in private. Well, kids, I'm going to start you off with a tricky question. Can anyone tell me what piety is? I'll be impressed if anyone can. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Well, let me tell you, piety means to be deeply religious or or righteous. And so you say, oh, that person, if they live very well in their obedience to the Lord, you say, oh, that's a very pious person, or they have great piety. It's doing the right thing. Now, these days, people use it to refer to people who do it in a hypocritical way. And they think, oh, that person is so pious because they think they are, but really they're not. The same way that Jesus um, confronted the hypocrites in Matthew 5. But it's still used in a positive sense, in a good way. Uh, Over the last few chapters of the book of Leviticus from chapter 11, we've seen instructions that the Lord has given to his people to remain ceremonially clean. And so to be pious in ancient Israel meant to be obedient to the laws that God had given them. And we've seen in the last few chapters uh, how these laws for ceremonial cleanness applied to many different areas of life. So in chapter 11, we saw about eating animals and touching their dead carcasses. Chapter 12, we saw uh, laws about childbirth. In chapter 13 and 14, we saw laws about skin diseases. And now here, we come to laws about bodily discharges in chapter 15. Now, all of these laws have to do with various aspects of life. And chapter 15 deals particularly with an area of life that is very private. And the point of my heading, piety in private, is not to say that we should only be pious in private. You know, keep your piety to yourself type thing. Uh, No, my point is that even in our private lives, even in the things that we do that nobody else sees, in the things that we think that no one else hears, we are to pursue piety. In the words of someone who isn't C.S. Lewis, Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. 
That was misattributed to C.S. Lewis, and I don't know who actually said it. It may have, there may be something similar from somebody else. Well, Leviticus 15 would say that holiness, cleanness, is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. In this passage, we have examples of ceremonial cleanness for things that affect parts of us that are very private. In fact, they're so private that in our culture today, we call them private parts. Right? And that's about as, as explicit as I'm going to get in reference to the parts. Because they are rightly parts that are supposed to be private, aren't they? They're not supposed to be on public display. They're not supposed to be shared with anyone else other than a spouse. But even though they might be private and unseen by almost every other person we meet, there is no part of us, physical or spiritual, that is unseen by God. Even if an ancient Israelite were able to disobey one of these laws without anybody else noticing, perhaps you, know, you just sort of cover it up and, and so people don't see, even if they were able to do that, God would know. And that is still true today, friends. There are no, there's no such thing as a secret sin. That may be true for, for people, you may be able to hide it from others, but you cannot hide that from God. Not even our most private parts are private to him. So how should we respond? Well, let's dive into this chapter. The first thing to note is that chapter 15 addresses four main issues. Firstly, it is a man with an abnormal discharge in verses 2 to 15. Secondly, a man and sometimes a woman with a normal discharge in verses 2 to 15. Oh, sorry. I've done that wrong. What? whatever it is, 16 to 18. Thirdly, uh, a woman with a normal discharge, verses 19 to 24. And finally, fourthly, a woman with an abnormal discharge in verses 25 to 30. So as you can see, there's a bit of a structure to the approach. It begins and ends with abnormal discharges for men and women. And then it has in the middle a couple of normal discharges for men and women. Now, a discharge is something which is sent out of the body, usually a fluid uh, when a patient in a hospital is discharged, they are sent out of the hospital. And so this chapter is all about fluids that are discharged from the human body. Now, already, if you haven't yet, we're starting to get into territory that's not exactly the kind of thing you usually hear in casual conversation, right? And maybe if you work in the hospital, you, you hear that all the time, <laughs> Let alone on a Sunday morning during a sermon will you hear things like this. Now, I hope, I hope you are not feeling too squeamish. If you, I don't know if you've blushed or not yet from this morning. But don't worry, I don't plan to get graphic with descriptions about this. But here it is in, in Holy Scripture, right? It's pretty incredible, don't you think? As with the last couple of chapters, I won't be going through uh, these sections in detail, but I will point out some key things for us to note. And the first of which comes from the first two verses. Let's read uh, Leviticus 15, 1-2. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. 
Now, the Hebrew word for body there in verse 2 can refer to the whole body, or in some instances, it refers specifically to private parts. And given what this chapter is talking about and the way the word is used later on, I think it's likely referring to private parts here in verse 2. And for the medically minded, I'm sure you can think of conditions where uh, there may be an abnormal discharge like this for men. As verse 3 says, it's where the body runs with it or where the body is blocked up by it. Uh, again, I won't get into the, what, what medical things that could be, but just know that such things exist and uh, they would have back in the day. And you know, one of the striking features of this discharge and the uncleanness of it for the man, which is what we see in verses 4 to 12, is that the uncleanness from the discharge of the man seems to pollute everything he touches. Did you notice that as Josh read it out earlier? So whoever comes into contact with not just him in person, not only if they touch the unclean person, but it's also if they touch almost anything else he has touched, his bed that he has lay on, anything that he has sat on, uh, if he spits on the man or on, on anybody else, uh, any saddle that he has ridden, uh, if, if the unclean person touches somebody else without first washing his hands, then all of those things make someone else unclean. And so if, if a person came into contact with this man, they would need to then go through the normal ceremonial process of becoming clean, which usually involved washing in water, uh, bathing, and then waiting until the evening. And you notice that uh, this, this tells us, gives us an indication that somebody who had something like this, they were not suddenly confined to their room and not allowed to leave. I mean, unless, unless they have a horse in their room, how else are you going to get a saddle unclean, right? So they were able to still participate, but they had to be extremely careful that they uh, were careful about who they touched and whoever came into contact with them, made sure that they became ceremonially clean. But just like as we've seen in previous chapters, this is, this is like a terrifying, morbid game of tip, right? The, the uncleanness spreads to whoever he touches. And the man himself, when the discharge is gone, would then have to count seven days, again, symbolizing completeness as we've seen, and then wash his clothes and bathe his body in order to be clean. And then on the eighth day, he would then give a, a cheap sacrifice, not terribly expensive, of two turtle doves or two pigeons as a sin offering and a burnt offering. Again, we've seen that many times in previous chapters. These were for the atonement of him, for the purification of uh, the man who was unclean. And so in this way... Uh, once the discharge had finished and he'd done the seven days, he was able to be ceremonially clean and could now participate in tabernacle worship. Uh, as we've seen in previous weeks, all of these, this just underscores once again just how holy and righteous the Lord is and how serious and pervasive the problem of sin and uncleanness is. Now, just to remind us once again, being unclean was not necessarily sinful, right? But to disobey the Lord's commands by coming before him while unclean 
was certainly a sin. And through this whole chapter, the fact that God gave these laws about things so private and intimate would have surely been a reminder to the Israelites that they were to be consecrated to the core, every part of them. There was not an area of life untouched by their being set apart for the Lord. These abnormal discharges which we see in these first 15 verses were also a reminder that even physical imperfections were enough to defile the tabernacle of God. Such people could not participate in the public worship of Israel until they were ceremonially clean. And we read later on in the book of Leviticus that certain priests, if they had certain physical deformities, it even goes into the the specifics of certain private parts of a priest. If they were not right, then they were not allowed to serve as priests. As I mentioned before, were such people cut off from the people of God? Were they rejected by him and by his people? No, they, they weren't. Not because of their physical deformities. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but I can imagine perhaps a a leper who had to live outside the camp or a person with an ongoing discharge issue like this, continuing to cry out to God, continuing to praise Him and to seek Him, even if they couldn't do that at the tabernacle. A couple of weeks ago, you might remember, we, we looked at Psalm 130. You can imagine somebody in this situation continuing to, to throw all of their trust and praise on the Lord, despite the fact that they were unable to participate in tabernacle worship. In the same way, faithful believers today, they hold on to God's goodness and they find joy in God's sanctifying work, even in their suffering. They praise Him even in the wilderness. Well, I think we have a likely example of such a person in the Bible that I'll talk about later. In our world, it's hard for us to grasp why God would make laws like this, right? Why should God care about things so private? And not only that, why would he stigmatize and exclude people for having something wrong with their bodies? One of the reasons we struggle with this is because we live in an age of body positivity, right? You Perhaps you've heard that term. We're told that we should never speak poorly of our bodies. We should never say bad things about our bodies because the key to being okay with yourself, the key to being at peace with yourself is accepting who you are, warts and all, discharges and all. Don't care about what those haters say. Don't shame anyone because of their body, we're told. Now, there is certainly some truth to that, right? All human beings are, after all, made in the image of God. A follower of Christ should never seek to shame anyone based on how they look. We see the truth about every person, whether they are so-called normal or whether they have some kind of debilitating disease that disfigures their body or mind. No, we see the truth that they are made in the image of God. No matter what illness or ailments they might have, they still share the incomprehensible honor of being made in his image. That is an astounding truth that of course should lead to us never shaming another person. And yet we are images that have been tainted with the effects of sin and the fall. And my body certainly is not perfect. 
I'm reminded of that every passing year. My wife reminds me of that every passing year. I'm just kidding. She's very loving and supportive and tactful. And I think I got her okay to say that. You see, the solution to the struggles and shame that we feel in our bodies is not to lie about what's wrong with them. The solution is not to call imperfections perfections. It's not to call the bad good, to pretend like your arm isn't broken when it is. No, it's to recognize that our bodies are less than perfect, and that is because of the fallenness of our creation. And yet God receives us just as we are. And he does so because of Christ. And not only does he do that, not only are we welcomed in with open arms because of Jesus, he also promises us a day when our bodies will be perfectly renewed. And for that we can have great joy and great hope. A day when all traces of the tainting of sin in our bodies will be cleaned away. When even our physical imperfections, which would have, which would have defiled the tabernacle if we were in ancient Israel, would be made right. Is that how you view your bodies, brothers and sisters? Is that how you see yourself? I say all of that because this chapter shows us that it is only that which is holy, as God is holy, that can enter his presence. Under the old covenant, that meant ceremonial cleanness in order to participate in tabernacle worship. Now, in the new covenant, we'll get to that. Chapter 15 deals with two normal discharges in the two middle sections. The first, in verses 16 to 18, is a normal one for men as part of their reproductive system. As verse 18 makes clear, uh, if it is between a husband and wife during intercourse, then she also becomes unclean, both of them. Now notice how, if that is the case, what they must do is bathe themselves in water and they'll be unclean until the evening. As, as we saw in chapter 12, remember we were talking about childbirth, uh, this is certainly not suggesting that this very normal and good act between a husband and wife is somehow dirty. Now, God doesn't give these laws because he thinks intercourse is icky, right? Remember, he designed it. He designed it to be good and pleasurable. So, again, like with chapter 12, the rationale rationale behind this is, is lost to us. But my guess is that it is perhaps to do with fluids that create life being discharged from the body. And once again, considering uh, how that, that reminds us of, of the of fallenness of creation and how that has brought death into the world. Uh, maybe, right? You could tie yourself in knots trying to figure out what the reasoning is, why God would do this, why it would be this kind of thing. And we, we, we don't know exactly why, but the most important thing to recognize is that this is what was required. That there was a reason for this and this was the effect. It would result in uncleanness and they would need to uh, properly wash in order to become clean. 
the most intimate act between a husband and a wife was not and still is not something God turns away from. Now, though these laws don't apply to us in the new covenant, it's worth recognizing, husbands and wives, that your marriage bed is given to honor the Lord. Whatever challenges or struggles you may face on that front, do you seek to work on them and see improvement in that area of your marriage in such a way that honors him? And in such a way that honors your spouse? Or are you being self-seeking? Are you perhaps being selfish in this area? Well, let me encourage you to speak with trusted brothers and sisters or pastors if you need help in that area. Well, in verses 19 to 24, we come to a normal female discharge, menstrual impurity. I must confess, uh, this may come as a surprise to you, uh, but I do not have any personal experience with this. I have not gone through it myself. Now, kids, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is something that happens to girls at a certain age uh, and then on into uh, their adulthood until another age. And it involves the loss of blood once a month. Now, another word we use for it is, does anyone know? Kids, <laughs> I shouldn't have put that to you, I'm sorry. <laughs> Another word we use for it is period, okay? As I, was, as I was typing this out using voice dictation, it was so frustrating because it would just put a period at the end of my sentence rather than putting the word in. That's, that's another word we use today to refer to uh, menstrual impurity or the menstrual cycle. Uh, and allow me to say, ladies, not only do I have uh, no experience with this, I clearly do not know what it is like to live with the many and varied challenges that come with this aspect of your life. Now, I do third hand through conversation, that kind of thing, but certainly not personally. But you know, something which was a helpful resource to me these last couple of weeks was a book called uh, A Brief Theology of Periods, and then in brackets, Yes, Really, by Rachel Jones. I encourage you, uh, as well as the men in, in our church, to have a read of it. And I, I encourage the brothers to read it because it will help you understand the challenges that your sisters in Christ face much better. Now, in the book, she actually says, let's be honest, your pastor probably won't be preaching about periods anytime soon. Well, here I am, everybody. You can thank the Lord and Leviticus 15 for that. Uh, I don't plan to hijack the sermon and suddenly make it about periods, but I think it's appropriate and important to briefly reflect on this theologically. It is in front of us in the text. And again, though these ceremonial laws don't apply to us today, women still have periods. And there could be some significant misunderstandings of what the Lord has to say about them here, and it is worth us considering those. As in ancient Israel, so today, periods could be a real source of shame. 
It doesn't take much imagination to see how that could be the case. Even today, even though we perhaps have done a lot to ensure that there's not as much shame, there is at least often some self-consciousness or perhaps even some embarrassment for many women. Notice how in the passage, the effect of her menstrual impurity is almost the same as that for the man with an abnormal discharge. Whatever she touches or sits on, if she's touched by another person, that kind of thing, she would, uh, that, that person would become unclean. Now, the key difference between the two of these is that a woman with her menstrual impurity does not have to offer sacrifices at the end of it. She is simply unclean for seven days. And that, of course, makes sense, right? Because this is not an abnormality. Just like the previous normal discharge for men, this is a post-fall normal discharge for women. It's also worth noting, as one commentator points out, that this uh, might have actually been less common for some women in ancient Israel. Uh, Many married young, after all, and they likely had many children if they survived giving birth. And so obviously it's not always the same, but often uh, when women are breastfeeding and uh, they, they don't get their periods and then sometimes they, well, particularly in this culture, they also would have uh, done that for much longer, for, for longer than we do today. And so it's, it's quite possible that a good portion of women in ancient Israel wouldn't have had their periods for long stretches of time, the same way women today do. But if she didn't marry... Or if that wasn't the case, then this would certainly be a regular part of her life. Can you imagine how things like this would have greatly affected daily life? Just imagine it. One week out of four, a quarter of your entire month, a woman had to be careful about who came near her. And the people who did come with her, they also had to, if they chose to be in her orbit and interact with her for whatever reason, they had to pay close attention to ensure they were ceremonially clean. It would mean if they touched her, they'd be unclean till the evening. I can also imagine how when they were functioning well and living as God's people, that they would have banded together to ensure their women were still cared for during this time. That is something that ought to be true today still. As we talked about in chapter 11, the chapter of childbirth, I think this probably has something to do with the reminder of life being in the blood and that blood being lost. And that that being the reason why uh, she's unclean during her period. Or whatever the reason, the effect would have been felt. As it is today, but in a different way. As I said, I don't know what it's like to walk with the challenges of this as a woman in our society. I don't know, what, I don't know all of the, the, the feelings that come with this for our sisters in Christ. But even though a lot of these ceremonial laws no longer apply to us in the new covenant, it's worth noting that the reminders can still serve their purpose. Sisters, when this time of the month, or as the Hebrew sometimes puts it, the way of women, when this time comes and all of the hormonal and mood changes and the pain and the difficulty and the trial comes with it, does it cause you to reflect on the fallenness of our world? 
Does it remind you of the sin which once separated you from God and now of the grace that he shows you in Christ? Does it remind you of the groaning and the longing for the day when all will be made clean, when all will be put right? As I mentioned before, some of the voices in our society want to say, well, this is a normal part of the female body and the only positive way forward is to accept it and celebrate it. You've heard of body positivity. We want to have period positivity. Well, I'm pretty sure, I I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure there aren't going to be any periods in the new creation. I think that's likely. So my sisters, you can give a resounding hallelujah to that. But certainly whether they are there or not, the thing that we can be certain of is that the pain and the hardship that comes with them will no longer be there. They will be wiped away. And it also means that the way forward in the here and now is not to try and spin it, so that it is somehow something you wear as a badge of pride. It's a trial and a hardship, especially for some women more than others. And as James encourages us, we are to consider such trials as joy because of the way that the Lord perfects us in them. And now again, as I mentioned before, I don't think that society-induced shame is a necessary part of that trial. I think actually we should do everything we can to ensure women are not ashamed of something that is, on this side of eternity, a natural part of their bodies and their bodily processes. But the way out of that shame is not to pretend like it's not hard or to pretend like it's not an undesirable part of life. It is to acknowledge it for what it is, a reminder of the fall, just like pain in childbirth, and trust that the Lord does not reject you because of it, that he does not love you less because he has given you this, but that he is working in you through it. My sisters in Christ, I pray that even in something that might seem unfair, that might seem confusing and just plain hard, I pray that you would honor the Lord and that you would seek and find sisters in our church who would walk with you and care for you through these struggles. And brothers, especially husbands or potential husbands, As awkward as it might seem to talk about periods, I pray that we would seek to be more understanding and more forbearing and more loving to our sisters in Christ when it comes to this particular trial that they face, which we don't have to. That takes us to our final discharge, which is an abnormal female discharge in verse 25. We see here in this verse what marks it as abnormal. 
It's not like a, a normal period. It's either at the wrong time or it goes for longer than it's supposed to. And the same rules apply about uncleanness spreading to anyone who touches her or something that she has sat on. Verse 28 tells us that after she has stopped bleeding, she then has to wait seven days before being clean again. You can imagine how long the process was for somebody with, for a woman with this uh, discharge that it would take to become clean. And the procedure for becoming clean from this is the same as uh, with the male discharge, where after seven days she brings an offering of two birds. Well, those are the four different types of discharges that we see in this chapter. And these laws instructed Israel how to live piously, even with issues that didn't affect others, even things in private. And with that, we come to an end of the ceremonial laws of chapters 12 to 15 in Leviticus. And it is also almost the end of our chapter. That brings us to our second heading, sanctifying separation. Let's read verse 31. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle, that is in their midst. Uh, this verse is uh, probably only summarizing the contents of chapter 15, but it would certainly apply to all of the laws that we have seen since chapter 11. After all, these laws are about how the priests can fulfill what God commanded them to do in Leviticus 10.10. 10. You might remember that. We've quoted it, I think, almost every week on these chapters. Uh, I, don't, I can't get it up on the screen. It's... But anyway, Leviticus 10.10, which says, here we go, got it. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and and between the clean and the unclean. And in verse 31, the Lord is uh, speaking to Moses and Aaron as part of this instruction. He's saying, they, you guys, are the ones who will keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness. They will live these laws out and they will instruct the people in how to live them out. But notice the purpose in verse 31. Notice the reason that the Lord has told them that they must keep them separate from their uncleanness. He says, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Basically, the Lord is saying the people need to be kept separate from their uncleanness because if they don't, they will die by defiling his tabernacle. Again, notice here what I said before, to be in an unclean state is not necessarily wrong. But to be unclean and to come to the tabernacle without properly making yourself ceremonially clean, well, that would be defiling God's tabernacle. And so they must be kept separate. It's the same as what we've been saying all along in these chapters, to consecrate means to be set apart. It's almost the same word as separate, set apart. And like we talked about at the beginning of our series on Leviticus, the story of this book is how the people of God can once again enter His presence. It was in the Garden of Eden that humanity was expelled from the Lord's presence. 
And Leviticus tells the story of how God's people can make their way back in. And the only way to enter the presence of a holy God without dying is to be holy. We saw the warning in chapter 10 of what happened when people did enter and disobeyed. Nadab and Abihu died. They were consumed with holy fire. And we'll see in chapter 16 next week the the climax of all of these laws and the high priest entering the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. But of course, being able to enter God's presence based on perfect obedience alone, well, that was never going to be possible, was it? God's people in Israel who were genuinely part of his elect, they did not enter his presence because of their perfection. They did not enter because of their ability to perfectly obey these laws. No, it was those who lived by faith. As the book of Hebrews tells us, it was the blood of the perfect sacrifice of the one who would come thousands of years later who sanctified all of God's people once and for all. His name is Jesus. And that brings us to our final heading, Christ at the core. We saw a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 8 how when Jesus touched a leper, Jesus himself wasn't made unclean by touching him, but instead, he made the leper clean. But today we're going to read about one woman who suffered greatly from an abnormal discharge. But it seems she was one of those who remained faithful to the Lord and faith-filled for him. Feel free to turn with me to Mark chapter 5. It will be on the screen for all of the tech lovers who think turning a few hundred pages is an unnecessary amount of energy and time wasted. Mark chapter 5 from verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Having read and listened to the regulations around this kind of discharge in Leviticus 15, you recognize which one it is, right? This is the last one, the the fourth one, the abnormal discharge for a woman. Having read all of that and what it entailed and what it meant, can you imagine the kind of agony and hardship that this woman would have gone through? Because her discharge was ongoing, she would have been in a permanent state of uncleanness for 12 years. She would not have even offered the two turtle doves because she wouldn't have gotten to that point where where her discharge stopped. You can see why she would spend so much money trying to have that uh, fixed, healed. 
Much like the leper who had to live outside of the camp or outside of the city walls, people always had to make sure that they were ceremonially clean whenever they came into contact with her or with anything she touched. She was basically a leper inside the city walls, inside her own home. You can hear the desperation in Mark's description. She'd spent all she had. And tragically, it didn't improve at all, but it got worse. So when she hears there's a miracle worker in town, she throws caution to the wind. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Once again, instead of Jesus becoming unclean, he makes the unclean clean. He reverses the flow of the spread of uncleanness. And in healing this woman, Jesus gives us a foretaste of the new creation to come. Eden has begun to break into the world through him. The promised and longed for return to his presence is happening. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Why would she be trembling? Why would she be fearful? You can imagine, can't you? Having a disease like this for 12 years? Everyone would know who she is. I, I can picture her trying to squeeze through the crowd to try and touch Jesus and trying not to be seen by anyone lest the people see her and think, Oh, it's you. Why are you out here making all of us unclean? As Jesus stops and asks the question and the commotion around him pauses to wonder what he's talking about and and who he's referring to, you can imagine how terrifying it would have been for her to out herself in front of everybody. To potentially subject herself to the judgment of others. How unloving could you be to do this? Could be their response. But she knows she's been healed. She felt in her body that the disease was gone. And so in fear and trembling, she comes forth and she tells Jesus and the crowd what happened. And what does Jesus say? Daughter, Your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Friends, this is what Jesus does for all who come to him in faith. See, in him a new covenant has been established. It's the same Lord. It's the same holiness. There is the same need for us to enter into his presence. Because we are all in the wilderness. We are all on the outside, outside of Eden. But our entrance is no longer based on ceremonial law. It is through faith in Christ. And that was necessary, of course, because our righteous works could never be enough. A passage that you're probably familiar with is Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So no matter how good we could be, this is the best that we could offer. And what you might not know is that the Hebrew that's been translated there as polluted garment is literally menstrual cloth. Rachel Jones has this to say about it. Outside of Christ, even our very best good deeds, our righteous acts are corrupted by our fallen nature. It's like offering a stinking sanitary towel to a holy God. Yes, that's a gross image, but that's how gross sin is. It is when we recognize and see that that is the position that we are need and that that we are in and that we are in desperate need to come to him for his grace and, and righteousness that we can come to Christ in faith. And praise God that he has welcomed us into his presence on the basis of Christ's pure white offering. And Jesus now calls every single person on the planet to hear his good news, to turn away from our sin, to recognize that our righteousness is not good enough before him and to put our faith in him, to trust in his sacrifice on the cross, to trust in the blood that does not make us unclean but cleanses us of all unrighteousness. His blood atones not just for our uncleanness but our sin. And by a work of grace, the Lord grants us holy status because of Christ. We receive his pure white garments as he takes our sin-stained ones on the cross. If you've not yet responded to Jesus, let me urge you to do so today. There is nothing greater in life. Because not only does Jesus cleanse us from our sin, but he also removes our shame. That is exactly what he did for this woman. Her 12-year disease had only gotten worse, but now it was healed. But perhaps more incredibly, she was now no longer that woman who was permanently unclean. She was now no longer that woman who had that embarrassing bleed. Her body and soul were made whole. 
in Christ. Go in peace, he said. And peace, as you might remember, is far more than just the absence of conflict. It is, in, in, in the Hebrew language, all about wholeness, completeness. Sometimes God heals physically today and it's one of the merciful ways that he cares for his people. But this story in Mark 5 points to the deeper problem of our sin and shame and how Jesus cleanses it. And it points forward to the unshakable promises of his restoration of all things, of his restoration of all creation, including our bodies. Not only will creation, not only will heaven and earth be made new, but so too will our bodies. And so in this gospel, brothers and sisters, we now live today with the recognition that we no longer need be ashamed. We are no longer that guy or that girl who has that annoying thing or that embarrassing problem. We are in Christ. He has borne our sin. He has borne our shame. Like this woman, we can face the crowds of people who would seek to put us on trial and we can say, I have put my faith in Christ. He is my Savior. He is my healer. He is my Lord. And there is nothing you can do that can take that away. When we do feel the shame of sin, we can come to Christ knowing that when we repent and turn to him in faith, he is faithful and just to forgive. Your shame is taken away, brothers and sisters. So do not hold on to it. Do not live in your sin. Do not try to hide it from God. Even the ones that nobody else sees. Surrender it to him. Even those things about yourself that are, that are not sinful, but that you feel ashamed of, that you try to hide from God, that you try to hide from others, even the things that nobody else sees. Bring them to the him. Remind yourself that he knows you more accurately and more intimately than you know yourself. And he loves you. He heals you. He cleanses you by his grace. And he has taken away your shame. Go in peace, knowing that you are welcomed into his presence because of his grace and our great Lord and Savior. Let's pray.
Our Father, we recognize these great truths that we have just heard. We see your love. We see the love of Christ. And we rejoice. And we praise you. We delight in you. We say, oh, how we love you. And yet we acknowledge that so often we do not look to you, but instead to our sin and shame. Instead of running to you to be welcomed with open arms, we try to hide. Father, please help us to see that that is such a fool's errand. And not only that, it is a bad decision. So please, Lord, by your Spirit, may the great and good news of the gospel, of our salvation, of our acceptance on the basis of Christ be the thing that drives us, that we might live consecrated to the core in the fullness and in the joy of knowing Christ and being in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.